0: Hello and welcome to part three of the revision cast, where I'm going to be revising Chinese history and doing a quickie, not too in-depth, but in-depth enough revision of what you need to know for the exams and whatnot. Okay, so today I'm gonna to look at Mao from 1949 to 1963, because this these are the years where Mao totally transforms China pretty much. So When Mao takes over China in 1949, uh, there are some problems that he has to face. So politically, the communists have to prove that they're capable of governing strongly and effectively. And there was opposition to the government, so that would need to be brought under control and or moved. Economically, China is very poor. At this stage, industrial production was 50% down on some of the best pre-war figures, and food production was down by 25%. Manchuria, which was China's most industrialized region, had been occupied by the Japanese, and there was a lot of inflation. Socially, most of the people in China are peasants who cannot read or write. For the most part, the Chinese people didn't want a lot of change. They mistrusted all modern ideas in farming, industry, education, medicine, and women's rights. And internationally, most of the world refused to recognize the communists. The USA continued to recognize the Kuomintang in Taiwan, and only the Soviet Union was willing to help the new China. So these are all things that Mao and the rest of the Chinese government are facing as they come to power in 1949. Okay, so from 1949, China becomes a one-party state. All other political parties are suppressed in a series of purges that continue from 1950 to 1952. And anyone who showed any opposition to communism was labeled as a counter-revolutionary or an imperialist. So to avoid accusations, Chinese increasingly tried to prove their loyalty by accusing others. In 1951, the party began the movement for thought reform. It was called the Movement for the Study of Mao Zedong's thought. And this involved close study of his writings combined with public self-criticism at party meetings. So from the very beginning, you get a flavor as to what's going to happen if you do not agree with Mao and his policies. So to gain further control, the government, uh, the Communist Party also organized some other mass campaigns. So in 1950, the Three Mountains Campaign uh was against feudalism, capitalism, and imperialism. Uh, In the 1950s, the Three Antis Campaign launched against corruption, waste, and too much bureaucracy. And the Three Antis Campaign of 1951 is followed by the Five Antis Campaign of 1952, which was to get rid of bribery, tax evasion, fraud, theft of government property, and spying. So people found guilty of any of these crimes were sent to labor camps to be re-educated with thought reform. Uh, The strangest example of party campaigns is probably the Swat the Fly campaign, which lasted throughout the 1950s, in which every citizen was asked to kill at least 10 flies a day. Mao was determined to gain control of the cities where the GMD had been at its strongest. So 65,000 people were killed in Guangzhou and 28,000 in Shanghai. All organizations were closed down, including churches. All religions were attacked. Mao's slogans began to appear on walls all over China for the first time. Uh, rivals of Mao were dismissed from offices. Uh, one of whom committed suicide. And as, mil- as many as one million opponents of Mao and the communist regime were executed between 1949 and 1951. Now, in the years before 1949, Mao had already began the process of giving land to the peasants in areas controlled by the CCP. And during the Civil War, most landowners had supported the Kuomintang, so one of Mao's first tasks was to take away the power of the landlords and the power that the landlords had over the peasants. So the agrarian reform law was passed in June of 1950 to speed the process of land reform up. CCC, 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 CCP members were sent out to the countryside to organize the peasants against the landlords. So doing this, the peasants were encouraged to hold mass meetings at which the landlords were denounced. And these people's courts, or as they were called, speak bitterness campaigns, were becoming more and more violent and often ended with the execution of the landlords. By 1952, we have two and three-quarter million landlords being killed. Land was taken from those who had more than they needed for their own use and given to those who had none. So between 1950 and 1952, More than 47 million hectares, which is almost half of the cultivated land in China, was taken from the landlords and given to 300 million peasants. Now, land reform proves a disappointment to many peasants as they didn't have the equipment or the finance to cultivate it. So many set up mutual aid teams of about 10 holdings in which they worked together on the land and could share animals and tools. And this, we'll see later, will um, be something that they do when they do the communes. But in this time, it's not a forced joining of the land. This is a neighborly, hey, we're going to join up the land. Now, the communist government brought in a series of measures to deal with the economic crisis that was China when they inherited it, so the state took over major banks, much of the heavy industry, and the railways. And in 1951, a people's bank was opened, which replaced private banks and controlled the issue of money. By doing this, they were able to remove inflation by the mid-1950s by uh, insisting on buying and selling low fixed prices. The government also dealt with food shortages during this time by making farmers sell 20% of their grain to the government at a fixed low price. Moreover, the farmers also had to pay an agricultural task. Now, Mao was very determined when he came into power to change the old attitudes to women who had been seen as second-class citizens. In the traditional Chinese families, marriages were arranged and wives were expected to completely obey their husbands. But the marriage law of 1950 placed women equally with men, legally, on an equal basis, and it broke the power of traditional male-dominated family, which basically kept women in subjugation. So uh, other things that the marriage law of 1950 did is it prohibited child child marriage, and matchmaking for money, it laid down very carefully rights of women and children, and it also provided for equal pay and maternity benefits, as well as child care at the workplace, so that women were encouraged to work outside the home. So having done all this, Mal then comes into what he calls his first five-year plan. This five-year plan goes from 1953 to 1957. And it is this first five-year plan which will further change agriculture and industry. So, by 1952, the Chinese economy was brought under control. Inflation was down. Inflation went from 1,000% to 15%. Uh, a new currency has been introduced, the yuan. Uh, public expenditure has been reduced. Taxes uh, for city dwellers had increased. Uh There was um, also a national resources committee that had been set up by the GMD uh, and uh, 200,000 of its workers had stayed in China. So they had the CCP was able to use that. And in addition, Mao was able to call upon Soviet advisors as well as a loan of three billion dollars. And also from 1949 to 1957, you're looking at the population of China's cities growing from 57 million to 100 million. So the first five-year plan's main areas of concentration were coal, steel, and petrochemicals. 700 new production plants were built in central China and Manchuria, and most targets were achieved with the exceptions being oil and merchant ships. So for example, coal production increased from 63.5 million tons in 1952 to 124 million in 1957. And during this period, all remaining private industry was taken over by the government. So all businesses still in Chinese hands were taxed so heavily That their owners eventually were just like, here, take my business. I'm so glad to not have this business because then I won't get all these taxes. So in 1952, the national expenditure was 6,810 million yuan. And it rose to 29,020 million yuan in 1957. So economic growth ran at 9% per annum during the first five-year plan. This plan was aided by the presence of 10,000 Soviet advisors, as well as Soviet machinery and equipment, and as well, 13,000 Chinese students were trainees in the Soviet Union. However, light industry, such as cotton making and food processing, was neglected in favor of heavy industry. So this meant that there was a slow growth in the standard of living with a shortage of consumer goods. And one of the most notable shortages was of bicycles. Now, during this time, we get the cooperative. So Mao follows the Soviet model of collectivization with his lower-stage cooperatives, followed in later years by the higher-stage cooperatives. So peasant farms are too small to be efficient and wouldn't be able to provide for the needs of the rapidly growing cities. Mao also was afraid that if the peasants kept their land, they would eventually become a new class of landowners only interested in making a profit for themselves. So, from 1953, the CCP encouraged peasants to join lower-stage cooperative farms of 30 to 50 families. Uh, They would pull their land, their equipment, their labor. So, although the land still technically belonged to the individual peasants, it was on permanent loan to the cooperative, which paid each family a rent for its use. However, the first five-year plan goes much further than this and encourages the lower-stage cooperatives to merge into far larger high-stage cooperatives, which consisted of 200 to 300 families. And by 1956, these cooperatives have been set up in most areas of China. Okay. Families are not paid rent for their land and only received wages for their labor. Their equipment, land, and animals were now the property of the cooperative, with the exception of a small plot of land which was used for growing vegetables and keeping chickens. Within six years of the agrarian reform law, once again, peasants no longer own the land. In 1956, Mao launched what became known as the Hundred Flowers Campaign, in which he allowed free discussion and criticism criticism of the government and its work. Why would he do this? There's been much debate about why he did. So Mao traveled widely throughout China, especially in the 1950s, early 1950s, and he was always received very warmly. Everybody was always cheering him and whatnot. So he appears to have believed that it was now possible to allow greater freedom of expression in China because the majority of people agreed with him. Um, By 1956, however, the CCP is losing a lot of its early unpopularity, and so, you know, more and more people are, are agreeing with the CCP. So the city population rose by 4 million, 40 million, sorry, which led to overpopulation, food shortages, and housing problems, as well as a shortage of consumer goods, Moreover, many peasants were not keen on the higher stage cooperatives in which they lost ownership of their land. Mao had also heard that local CCP officials had been accused of acting heavy handedly and wanted to hear other opinions. So in 1954, President Li Xiaoqi had delivered a report to the Congress of the CCP in which he mentioned Mao's name 104 times. At the next Congress in 1956, Liu mentioned Mao only four times. On the face of it, therefore, Mao was calling for a great debate on the five-year plan, but in reality, the campaign may well not have been sincere, but simply an attempt to discover any potential opponents. In the autumn of 1956, Wang Meng, a 22-year-old son of a professor of philosophy at Beijing, published a short novel called Young Man, Who has just arrived at the organization department, which attacked laziness and incompetence in the communist bureaucracy? So, early in 1957, Mao urged Communist Party officials to be prepared to undergo criticism from the people with the statement Let a hundred flowers bloom, let a hundred schools of thought content. He meant that free speech was healthy and should be encouraged. There was a rush to respond, and criticism of Mao, the government, and the CCP gathered momentum. Many people openly criticized the plan, especially university lecturers, artists, writers, and teachers. Party individuals and policies were attacked as being corrupt, efficient, or unrealistic. Even Mao himself was included. Leading figures in government, education, and the arts were all attacked for their failures and this is too much for Mao, who in June of 1957 suddenly cracked down on his critics and everything goes into reverse in what is known as the anti-rightist campaign. The time of free expression is gone, replaced by the anti-rightist campaign, which was designed to flush out any critics of the CCP and the government and purge the party. So, leading critics are forced to retract their statements University lecturers, school teachers, economists, writers, and artists had to make public confessions and submit themselves to re-education. Re-education basically means you're sent off to camps in the countryside for thought reform. Uh, Others were sacked from their jobs, and people were forbidden to speak freely, and the press was censored. So... Because of this reaction, this is what has led to different schools of thought about the motives for his Hundred Flowers campaign in the first place. So one school of thought is that he genuinely encouraged free speech and criticism, genuinely believed that he wouldn't hear all this criticism because he thought the people loved him so much and was shocked by the reaction and then clamped down on his critics. And another school of thought believes that the campaign was a deliberate plan by Mao to flush out critics of the government and the CCP okay so following the hundred flowers campaign we get another wonderful campaign uh, that goes great in 1958 the second five-year plan which becomes known as the great leap forward so mal had decided on the great leap forward for seven re- several it's not seven sorry several reasons so after 10 years of communism now wanted another revolution in order to hand control of agriculture and industry to the government. He believed that these were being run by the middle class experts who were similar to the Mandarin class under the emperors. China's vast resource of manpower, he believed, was not being used effectively. There was still a lot of unemployment in towns, cities, and the countryside, and in the countryside, peasants would be fully employed on large irrigation and flood control projects and would also develop small-scale industries. And Mao was also determined to turn China into a powerful industrial nation as quickly as possible. Much had already been achieved, but the pace was too slow, and the money to set up new factories was getting scarce. So if China was short of money, it definitely wasn't short of people. So Mao's idea was, why not use that muscle power in the peasants? The peasants only spend so much of the year, you know, harvesting and planting seeds and whatnot. The rest of the time, they can be doing other stuff. So one of the things about the Great Leap Forward was that the Chinese economy would overtake that of Britain within 15 years and that of the United States within 20 or 30. So a key element in the Great Leap Forward is propaganda. Posters, slogans, newspaper articles were all used to encourage mass enthusiasm, as well as long hours of work no matter what the conditions or weather. Wherever people worked, loudspeakers played revolutionary music and speeches and encouraged workers to go beyond their targets. And as a result of this party propaganda, a lot of impressive construction projects were finished in record time. All right. In cities, industries which required a lot of workers, but little money, were set up to solve the problem of unemployment. Higher and new, new and higher targets for industry and agriculture were introduced. Central planning was abandoned in favor of local organization. So small commune factories were set up to make all kinds of industrial products, such as cement, ball bearings, and chemical fertilizer. The great emphasis is placed on the manufacturing of steel and the establishment of 600,000 backyard steel furnaces in towns and villages all over China. And before long, these backyard furnaces had turned out 11 million tons of steel, which was 65% more than the output for 1957, which sounds great. But as we know, the steel was not exactly high quality. All right. Now also decided on a new method of organizing agricultural life, the commune. So collective farms were joined into 24,000 communes with an average population of 30,000 people on each commune. The people in the communes were organized into brigades of workers between one and 2,000 people and then into teams of workers of 50 to 200 people. The government tried to persuade people to join communes through a tremendous popu- propaganda campaign. And by the end of 1958, the whole of China was organized into communes with about 700 million people, or 90% of the population, organized into 26,578 communes. Peasants had to hand over everything. Their plots of land, their furniture, literally everything. And... You know, using the communes, it looked like the CCP had the way to organize China's vast peasant labor force. It seemed like the ideal way. You know, they were large enough to tackle large projects such as irrigation works and run their own local schools and clinics. And they also set up their own local industries to mine coal and iron and make steel and blast furnaces. So life in the commune was supposed to be lived communally. Peasants were to eat in a mess hall, and nurseries were provided to take care of the kids, and, you know, you had the the elderly care unit and all that kind of stuff. The problem is, the Great Leap Forward, with all its good intentions, tried to do too much too soon, and it led to too many mistakes. So... With the industry, thousands of small factories, instead of one large factory, actually proved to be insufficient and wasteful, and a lot of the backyard iron and steel was of such poor quality that it couldn't even be used. Also, these backyard furnaces took too much of the country's coal supply, which meant that a lot of the steam locomotives couldn't operate, and party workers were urged to work faster to produce more, and as a result... Uh, their machinery, which was old and overworked, fell apart. And oftentimes there were a lot of different accidents in the factories and whatnot as factory workers would fall asleep at their machines because they were so exhausted. In the agriculture, food production also slumped because too many peasants had been moving from farming to industry. So a lot of them had moved off the farms and into the factories and whatnot. And by 1961, China was having to buy grain from abroad, whilst only strict rationing prevented a famine. The situation wasn't helped by three disastrous harvests caused by floods and drought. So the Great Leap Forward, together with bad weather, reduced the harvest of 1960 by 144 million tons. And between 1959 and 1962, it's estimated at least 20 million Chinese died of starvation and related diseases. Communes were also not the excess that Mao had hoped for. Many proved too too large to be run efficiently. Peasants resented the loss of private plots and the attack on family life. At first, members of the commune were not allowed to own any private property. They all received the same wages. And even families were broken up to make certain that all who could work did so. So it's not exactly what the Chinese people were looking for. So these all lead to the failure of the Great Leap Forward. Uh, Again, several reasons for it. series of natural disasters badly affected the harvests. In 1960, north and central China had their worst drought for over 100 years. The Yellow River, which irrigates half of the cultivated land of the country, dried up. And further south, there was serious and widespread flooding. Also during this time, let's not forget that Mao is falling out with Khrushchev, who is the leader of the Soviet Union. Khrushchev strongly disapproved of what Mao was doing and in 1960 ordered all scientists and engineers working in China to return back to the Soviet Union. As a result, China was seriously short of technicians and the expertise needed to build up its economy. Factories under construction couldn't be finished without Soviet assistance and some factories already built had to be closed down as the supply of spare parts from the Soviet Union dried up. So the main responsibility for the failure of the Great Leap Forward does lie with Mao, as he was in too much of a hurry and didn't give enough thought to the practical problems that would be created by the Great Leap Forward. And also, the Great Leap Forward's pretty much nonsensical. Major industrial development needs capital investment, technology, and planning. And Mao rejected all of these. He was afraid that if he allowed the creation of a class of experts, he would lose control of the revolution. And that's another reason why the Great Leap Forward failed. So Mao did take part of the blame for the failure of the Great Leap Forward. And in 1958, he resigned as China's head of state. So in 1958, China is now controlled by three leading communists. You have President Liu Shaoqi, Prime Minister Zhao Enlai, and the CCP General Secretary Deng Xiaoping. So under Liu Shaoqi, Zhao Enlai, and Deng Xiaoping, new policies which abandon the Great Leap Forward are introduced. So thousands of factories are closed down. Other factories are grouped together and technicians and professional advisors were sent in and people were encouraged to set up their own businesses, and bonuses were given for increased output. This will sound familiar later on with Deng Xiaoping as well. Okay, Uh, Millions were returned from manufacturing to farming to encourage greater food production, and private garden plots were once again returned to the peasants. And communes were reduced to one-third of the size that they were, the original size. So... These are all things that they do to try to, um, uh, 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 what am I trying to say, reverse the effects of the Great Leap Forward. As we can see, there's a lot of capitalist ideal ideology in there, which of course Mao is not going to be happy with. But, you know, hey. Mao really doesn't have a place to stand at the moment because he has taken some, he never takes all, never takes all, but he has taken part of the blame for the failure of the Great Leap Forward and has resigned, and so he can't really do much, and so, but let's not forget Liu Shaoqi, Zhao Enlai, Deng Xiaoping, introducing some sort of semi-capitalist ideas to China at this time to try to help it recover from the Great Leap Forward. Okay. Okay. So, that is about Mel and the Great Leap Forward and the 100 Flowers campaign and everything like that. Uh, that is your revision cast for today. I hope that you were listening along to this and went, oh yeah, or remembered some stuff or hopefully I, you heard something new that you're going to remember for uh, the exams and whatnot. All right. That'll do me for now. Uh, thanks for listening, and I'll catch you later. Bye.